These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. With the reign of Shipililiuma, the Hittite Empire recovered from near collapse to conquer its greatest rival, the Eastern Mitanni Kingdom. Shipililiuma campaigned on every front and extended the borders dramatically. With his death and the quick death of his first heir, Mershali II took the base that his father had established and further secured the borders, solidly discouraging further Assyrian encroachment in the east and completely destroying the Arzawans in the west, while maintaining his grip on Syria against an Egypt distracted by transition. Thanks to the eclipse in the tenth year of Mershali's reign and the coming interactions with Egypt, we can finally start putting quite secure dates to the coming events. It is 1295 BCE when Muatali II, son of Mershali, takes the throne. He finds himself in an enviable position, with the empire as big as it's ever been, but already challenges are forming on multiple fronts. The Cascans, of course, are never silent, though Mershali's dedicated and intensive campaigns at the end of his career must surely have been at least somewhat effective in weakening them. Still, weakened or not, Muatali saw that the approach taken by generations of former Hittite kings, that of endless royal campaigning against, against the threat as if they were a civilized neighbor, was ultimately futile. A new approach was needed. Otherwise, the Empire would forever be obsessed with the Cascans, forever at their mercy, and surely a new sack of the capital would always be only one crisis away. The first change was to appoint a more or less permanent commander in charge of the Cascan front. Muatali appointed his brother, named Hattushili because apparently the Hittites are starting to run out of names by now, to lead this expedition. Hattushili left us a little bit of record of his first engagements, which begin with him complaining that he doesn't have enough troops to do the job properly, then ends with him celebrating a great victory, having captured many Cascans and reclaimed some northern frontier lands for the empire. Hattushili would engage in a few more campaigns over his life and be rewarded for his service with the third most powerful job in the empire, chief of the royal bodyguards. However, more important than any campaign, at least according to the new strategic policy in the north, was the fact that Hattushili, in his role as governor of all the upper lands, was able to sit on the entire frontier and monitor developments full-time. Along with guarding against Cascan raids, Hattushili was responsible for building, or perhaps rebuilding, depending on how the situation was, the entire devastated north. This required major construction projects to fortify many or perhaps all of the towns along the entire northern stretch of Anatolia, as well as substantial efforts at repopulation. This last was key, for a big part of the reason that the Cascans were so successful is that they had made sure the region remained mostly empty, thus giving them tremendous space to sneak around and maneuver. Additionally, of course, the economic base of the region could never support an independent garrison army until its economic base was filled out again. Where did the people for these repopulation efforts come from? Some were taken from campaigns elsewhere, for military activity never really stopped in the Hittite Empire. 
Additionally, we know that Cascans were taken as slaves during the northern campaigns, though it seems a bit silly to think that they would be repopulated right in the very place where they'd been despoiling. Additionally, it may have been the case that certain portions of the Hittite population were sent up to the north, for while evidence is a bit scanty for that, we do know that there are major internal population shifts going on at the same time. The biggest of these is probably Muatali's signature domestic initiative. You may recall that at the start of the 14th century, the Babylonians built a splendid new capital city as a way to show off their power and wealth, Dur-Kurigalzu, the ruins of which sit not far from modern Baghdad. Then, in the middle of the 14th century, the Egyptians, at the height of the 18th dynasty, build a splendid new capital as a way to show off their power and wealth, named Akhet Aten or now more commonly called Amarna, where the Amarna letters were found. Well, the Hittites may be a bit late to the showing-off party, but Muatali is determined to build a splendid new city in the region that would classically be known as Cilicia, named Tarhuntasha. This was a vanity project, made possible by the spoils of two generations of ceaseless conquest. Unlike the other two new capitals of the 14th century, the ruins of Tarhuntasa have not yet been found. It is in a pretty rough spot to be doing archaeology, after all, what with the mountains and the Turco-Syrian border so close by. And so it's tough to quantify just how opulent this new palace city was. After all, we know that Hattusha was not quite as fancy as Babylon or the various Egyptian great cities, and so, perhaps... Tarhuntasha did not quite meet the standards set at Amarna and Durkurigalzu. On the other hand, this was a brand new city explicitly built for the needs of a much larger empire than Hattusha had ever expected to rule over. And since Muatali had picked up all the major state gods from their temples in the Hattian heartland, there's no reason to think that they were not housed in splendor comparable to their fellows in Egypt and Babylon. But what differentiates Tarhuntasha from Amarna and Dur-Kurigalzu is that it wasn't just a vanity project. Hattusha, as has been mentioned before, was strategically in a terrible place. In the early days of the old empire under Hattushili, it was a decently defensible location against the other powers of central Anatolia. But the days when anyone in central Anatolia was at all relevant are long gone. Far more importantly, it's way up north, not far at all from the constant Kaskin raids, and as we saw during Tutalia III's reign, all it took was a few bad years for the old capital to get sacked. Thus, Tarhuntasha was far further south, in the region later known as Cilicia and possibly quite close to Kiswatna. This protected it from Kassite raids, which was obviously invaluable. It also brought the capital much closer to Syria, giving it substantially better communications with the great powers of the Near East and the important contested vassals of the south. It also brought the capital much closer to the great trade routes, which enriched the whole region. In short, Tarhuntasha, at least in terms of location, was a straight upgrade from the old capital, which managed to be distant from everything that now mattered in the empire period, 
and still vulnerable to the one threat that no amount of Hittite military power seemed able to contain. And yet, despite this, it seems that basically no one was happy about it. Hattusha, it seems, had some deep cultural cachet after having been the capital for 300 years at this point. All of the top aristocratic households had fortified palace compounds in and around the upper city, and deep vested interests in the politics of Hattusha. This, of course, was another reason why Muatali may have wanted to leave, to create an imperial city free from the old politics, but it would hardly endear him to these old politicians. But perhaps more importantly, Hattusha was the site of many temples and was located near a number of ancient holy places that predated the Hittite Empire. It was the center of a holy district, and for centuries, kings and nobles had spent a good deal of time when they were not out on campaign, traveling between the shrines to give offerings to the literally hundreds of major festivals for the so-called Thousand Gods of Hatti. Simply bringing the gods with him on a trip south did not apparently bring the full force of these holy places, at least in the eyes of many. More than that, there was the peculiar decision to name the city Tarhuntasha, which means City of the God Tarhunt. Now, Tarhunt was a storm god and a god of high rank, and Muatali had apparently taken Tarhunt as his personal god. However, Tarhunt was a Luwian storm god, a deity from South Anatolia. Why did Muatali snub the Hattian Hittite version of the god, named Tarhunna, or the Hurrian version of the god, Teshub? While Luwian deities were accepted in the greater Hittite religious pantheon, they may have lacked the current prestige of the Hurrian gods, and they lacked the connection to the ancient traditions that Hattian gods had. And so we find that it's hard to see anyone at all writing in support of this move, for theological reasons, but also probably for unspoken political ones. Even Muatali's children and grandchildren would later write prayers to the gods announcing that they had nothing at all to do with the move to Tarhantasha, and basically they had no idea what Muatali had been thinking. While from our perspective it seems like it's a natural good choice and one much more grounded in strategic realities than the extravagance of Durkuri Galzu or the theological ambition of Aket Aten, everyone except the king himself thought it was sheer madness. There's one consequence we can discuss, though. With the king moving south and the king's brother gaining substantially more power in the north, we briefly enter a situation in which the Hittite Empire is at great risk of becoming divided. In the north, Hattusili essentially becomes an almost completely independent ruler, possibly even taking control of the old capital after it's downgraded to mere city. While a north-south split did not happen in Muatali's lifetime, it does appear that many people had legitimate worries that Muatali was unnecessarily jeopardizing the hard-won stability of the empire and practically begging for either a succession crisis or a full-on civil war. But as it happened, Hattusili spent the next 20 years mostly behaving himself. 
He gathered power, prestige, and title to his northern fiefdom, and Muatali never seems to have had reason to disagree with him on anything, leaving the main portion of the Hittite Empire free to spend two decades on matters aside from the Kaskans. Which is good, because in the West, there's a remarkable bit of trouble stirring. Honestly, if someone was going to make a movie set in the Hittite Empire, they could hardly do better than to pick the dastardly renegade who first makes his appearance at the start of Muatali's reign. His name is Piyamaradu, and we'll be hearing from him for quite a while, in some remarkable contexts. We don't have any clear idea where Piyamaradu comes from, which only enhances his mystique. He could have been a renegade Hittite prince who left the empire for personal reasons or out of sheer ambition. Some think he may have been a princeling from the now-annihilated Arzawan royal line, perhaps the legitimate heir of the deposed kingdom. He could well have been a completely unrelated adventurer from a completely unrelated background. Whatever the case, he appears in his early life to have had some position or connection with the Hittite Empire, likely a somewhat minor position, but fell out of favor for unknown reasons. Though we don't know what caused the break, we are certain he went on to nurture a grudge against the empire which had spurned him. Leaving Hittite lands, he headed west. Of course, by the time of Muatali, you had to go pretty far west indeed to get all the way out of the Hittite Empire, and he ended up at the court of either Ahiawa or an Ahiawan vassal, where the Mycenaean Greeks were more than happy to support any disgruntled enemy of the Hittite regime. Piamaradu finds himself in the land of Milawanda, a city-state on the southwest coast that would, in Greek times, come to be known as the city of Miletus. In classical Greek times, the entire west coast of Anatolia would be the domain of the Ionian Greeks and an integral part of the wider Greek community, especially in the early Greek period. However, until now, we've only seen it as the domain of the Arzawans and Luwians, non-Greek Anatolian cultural groups. We've seen Ahiawan raids against Western Anatolia, but with the tale of Piamaradu, we learn, incidentally, that Milawanda has fallen out of the Hittite sphere at some unknown time and become a Mycenaean Greek vassal. This was almost certainly a very recent development from either the very last years of Mershili's reign or the very beginning of Muatali's. Piamaradu formalizes his ties with the Ahiawan Greeks by giving his daughter in marriage to the king of Milawanda. I should probably mention right here at the start that there are some people who connect Piamaradu to the history of Priam, the king of Troy during the Trojan War. This is contested, to say the least. We do know that the first part of Piamaradu's name, the Piyama, is a somewhat common element of West Anatolian names, and it could well be the case that whoever the historical Priam was, was called Piyama in his native tongue. But knowing that it was not an uncommon name means that we can't be certain Piamaradu was in fact King Priam. This connection to the city of the Trojan War is not incidental, for once Piamaradu has established his power base, he would go north along the coast to attack the territory of Willusa, which surrounds the city of Troy. 
The Trojans, apparently, resisted so fiercely that Muatali would later note the spectacular loyalty of the people of Wilusa in the face of adversity. However, the surrounding Hittite vassal lords were generally, it seems, less supportive, as we only know of one king, Manapatarhunda of the Sheha Riverlands, who came to the aid of the Trojans. We last saw this king two episodes ago, and the Sheha Riverlands rebelling against the Hittites at the beginning of Mershali's reign. But Mershali's corrective action was apparently so convincing that the Sheha Riverlands were model vassals after that. However, even the backing of the Sheha Riverlands could not spare Troy from the Greek coalition. The Anatolians were defeated soundly, and Manapatarhunda and some amount of reinforcements were forced to flee to the island of Lesbos, which had been a Hittite possession since the conquest of Arzawa. Piamaradu, however, chased them to Lesbos and beat them there as well. Now, there is a lot here that kind of sort of recommends itself to being the historical basis for the Trojan War. And the very few fragments which tell the story that I've just relayed here have been poured over for a few decades now. There are clear parallels, the Greek invasion being supported by Miletus while Troy was defended by at least one ally deeper in Anatolia, and it may be the case that Manapatarhunda was not the only vassal to support Willusa, just the only one we hear about. We even get the hero attacking the island of Lesbos to go along with it. And, of course, the archaeological layer which best fits the story in the excavations of the ancient city of Troy has signs of a major destruction somewhere between 1300 and 1250 BCE, which puts us square in the right time period. However, there are also severe problems with naming this incident as the Trojan War. Most notably, the suspected Priam is on the wrong side of the conflict. Lesbos is attacked after the main battle instead of before. And most critically, the whole scale is off. Only a small amount of Mycenaeans seem to have been involved, probably a bunch of mercenaries or itinerant warriors. The Ahyawan kings allowed Piamaradu to take the leading role here, and the war itself does not seem to have lasted longer than a single campaigning season. Hardly the ten-year siege and thousand boats involving the entire Greek world depicted in legend. And perhaps most importantly, the city of Troy does not seem to have been destroyed in this engagement. Muatali was apparently greatly dismayed when Manapatarhunda sent him a letter detailing the disaster that had befallen in the West. His dismay was magnified because he was in the middle of moving to a new city, and intended to focus pretty much exclusively on the rising threat in the South. Still, Greeks pushing on to the Anatolian mainland was not something that could be ignored and so he dispatched a general named Gashu to deal with the matter and put an end to this dashing renegade Piamaradu. Gashu was meant to be enforced by another fellow we've seen before back in Mershali's reign, Kapanta Karunta, as well as Manapatar Hunda. The latter, however, fresh off his double defeat, sent a letter back insisting that, ah, he's too ill to go on campaign. 
Even without Manapatar Hunda, though, Gashu's expedition was able to retake the region of Willusa, though Piamarandu escaped at the last minute, no doubt vowing like a true villain to return and take his vengeance sometime in the future. To take the Willusan throne, Muatali selected some guy named Alexandu, which may very well be an Anatolian spelling of the more well-known Greek name Alexander, though because of the commonness of this name, it's difficult to identify him with any particular famous Alexander. Alexandu and Muatali concluded a fairly standard vassal treaty, the particular place where the Trojan loyalty to the Hittite throne was commended. But even now, we can see where Muatali's concerns lay, for not only does he lay out that the Willusans are expected to provide troops against various local threats, but also are to send troops in case Muatali makes war against Egypt, the Hurrians, Babylon, or Assyria suggesting that he considered all four of these to still be valid great powers that would require the entire might of the Hittite Empire, even with the most distant corners of the empire providing support. At some point, the twice-loser who had flaked out of the reconquest campaign, Manapatar Hunda, was deposed quietly by Muatali and replaced by his son Masturi. For now, we will leave Masturi in power in the, in the Sheha Riverlands, Alexandu in power in Willusa, and Piamaradu out in the wilderness somewhere, plotting his next great caper. The tale of the renegade has not ended, but we won't hear about him for a bit longer. This means we can finally focus on something I think a good number of listeners have been waiting for. Muatali II is the king who fights the Battle of Kadesh against the greatest Egyptian pharaoh, Ramesses II. The battle itself will be the subject of next week's episode, but we're still pretty early in Muatali's reign and have a good 15 years before the showdown of 1274. Let's move south to set the stage and see what's going on down in Egypt. Now, as I'm writing this, my favorite Egypt podcast, and my main source for Egyptian info in general, is the History of Egypt podcast by Dominic Perry. However, his most recent episodes in the timeline are focused on King Tut at the tail end of the 18th dynasty, meaning that I'm sort of out in the wilderness now with regards to Egypt stuff. All this is a way of apologizing if I get anything wrong, and I have no doubt that when Mr. Perry makes his way to the 19th dynasty, he'll be doing a much better job of presenting the Egyptian side of this than I'm about to. Anyway, after King Tutankhamun died, Egypt fell into a bit of a crisis. We saw some of this when King Tut's wife sent a letter to Shipililiuma asking for a Hittite prince to come take the throne. This letter was sent in order to keep the senior royal minister, a man named Ai, from stealing the throne for himself. As it turned out, Shapililiuma's son was murdered, possibly by Ai himself, and Ai ended up taking the throne anyway. This, of course, helped inflame tensions between the two nations, though really the geopolitical conflict over Syria and Canaan probably would have seen the two empires at loggerheads soon enough regardless. Anyway, minister-turned-pharaoh I ruled for three years before himself dying. 
since there was no more legitimate pharaonic bloodline, command of the nation fell to a man named Horemheb. Horemheb was a low-born man who had joined the military and excelled so greatly that he'd become a top general under Pharaoh Akhenaten. Akhenaten was, of course, the pharaoh who moved the capital to Amarna and instituted a massive religious reform centered around the primacy of the sun god Aten. When Ahoramhed took control, he was apparently so disgusted by what Akhenaten had done that he initiated a massive campaign to have his name erased from history. However, the chaos that had resulted from the campaigns of Tut and I took quite a bit of work for Horemheb to reverse, and he spent much of his reign stabilizing things and rooting out the by now endemic corruption in the government. All in all, he's considered to have done a pretty good job with a pretty unfortunate situation, and by the time he died, three years after Muatali came to the throne in the north, Egypt was once again in a decent state, though somewhat reduced. Indeed, its vassals in Canaan were for the most part only nominal vassals, and the Egyptian state only held on to a small number of fortresses in the region. Horemheb, despite ruling a good long time, left no valid heirs, and so selected a man who would take the throne name of Ramesses to take over. This is not the famous Ramesses, and in fact, Ramesses I would die only a year later, leaving a throne to his son Seti. And I should say, I always heard it pronounced Ramses, but apparently Ramesses is more correct. Anyway, Seti finished the job that Horemheb had started and really started moving into Canaan and re-establish Egyptian authority there. This involved cracking a few skulls when the local leaders announced that they were quite happy with Egypt staying in Egypt, but soon enough Egyptian power was firmly established again with a northern border at the land of Amaru and the city of Kadesh. This was, to the pharaoh's mind, intolerable. A land once conquered by any Egyptian pharaoh was rightful Egyptian clay in perpetuity. And so, to amend the insult of having lost that territory, Seti marched some soldiers north and simply took it over. This, however, was not the famous Battle of Kadesh. Muatali was too busy with other things to deal with the matter right away. You see, there's been a spot of trouble in the east. In the rump state of Mitanni, the king that Shapililiyuma had installed had died and been replaced by his son. The son, however, felt that all that vassalage to the Hittites was a raw deal and broke free of Hittite influence. What remained of the Mitanni kingdom was then promptly conquered by the Assyrians, who have been doing fantastically in ways that will be related in future episodes when we get back to Mesopotamia proper. With most of the kingdom taken, the Mitanni king retreated to the city of Irite. But as we'll see, Assyria has something of a grudge against the Mitanni. Like, such a grudge that the Assyrian army doesn't even pause and continues to pursue the Mitanni king in exile all the way to Irite, then sack the city where he had fled, enslaved everyone, and then, as the Assyrian king proudly announces on a triumphal monument, he then burned the city, then destroyed what was left after burning it, and then salted the land to make sure no one ever settled there again. Take that random city 
where a king happened to flee to. We will see that the Assyrians spend a lot of time not playing around when dealing with these sorts of matters. But the details of Assyrian vengeance are less important for our story than the fact that suddenly, a tiny former Mitanni vassal is now pressing hard against Hittite borders, and it's honestly more solidly put together than the Mitanni kingdom ever was. I have a hard time thinking that the emphatic methods employed by the Assyrians failed to leave an impression on Muatali when he heard of it. Soon enough, the Assyrian king was sending a fairly polite letter requesting that Assyria be formally recognized as one of the great powers of the Near East, presumptively addressing Muatali with the title brother. Now, we saw quite a lot of my brother this and my brother that when reading through the Amarna letters. It was pretty standard among kingdoms of equal standing. Muatali, however, is having absolutely none of this. You continue to speak about the defeat of the Mitanni king and your conquest of the land of Huri. You have indeed conquered by force of arms, and you conquered other lands, and you, you become a great king. But why do you still continue to speak to me about brotherhood and about seeing Mount Amanus? What is this brotherhood, and what is this seeing Mount Amanus? For what reason should I write to you about brotherhood? On what account should I write to you about brotherhood? Were you and I born from one mother? As my grandfather and my father did not write to the king of Assyria about brotherhood, you shall not keep writing to me about brotherhood and great kingship. It is not my wish. The newcomer to the regional stage was thus smacked down good and hard. But this wasn't the end of the matter, far from it. Muatali could not afford to start a new round of eastern warfare with a renewed Egypt pressing against his south. And along with this blunt insult, he also sent a Hittite envoy. Relations would, for a while longer, remain frosty but open. It seems likely that both nations relied too heavily on the wealthy northern trade routes to close things down completely. Perhaps because of the Mitanni matter, it took Muatali a year or more to respond to the conquest of Kadesh by the Egyptians, sending troops down to try and contest the matter. Pharaoh Seti was still close enough to match Muatali in the field, however. The results of this clash are recorded as a victory among Egyptians, and we have no record at all from the Hittites, which may indicate that the Hittites were too embarrassed to commit record of a defeat to claim, or may simply be a function of the fact that the capital at the time, Tarhantasha, has yet to be dug up by archaeologists. The Egyptian account of this battle reads, Pharaoh Seti, the mighty bull, red-horned, mighty-hearted, smiting the Asiatics, beating down the Hittites, slaying their chiefs, overthrown in their blood, charging among them like a tongue of fire, making them into nothing. The many chiefs of those countries who did not know Egypt were brought by his majesty back as living captives. As he does so, he returns as a victor, when he has devastated all the countries. He has smitten the land of Hatti, causing the cowardly rebels to cease resisting. 
This is some fantastic imagery, though definitely overblown. The Egyptians' one was what was essentially a defense against a possibly ill-prepared retaliation. Likely, they took a fair number of captives from among the attackers, and, having had a decisive battle, said he could feel secure in his control of Canaan up to Kadesh and Amaru. Muatali, glad to have not lost any more territory after what appears to have been a decisive defeat, contested the matter no further. There may have been a treaty at this point demarcating the border at Kadesh and Amaru, though it isn't quite certain if any actual treaty ever existed. Seti, for his part, seems to have been quite happy with this as his northern border, and spent the rest of his reign pushing the borders in other directions, including into the Arabian deserts, with his somewhat notable campaigns against a Bedouin people called the Shasu of Yahweh. The question of the relationship between these people and the later Hebrews of the Old Testament is a matter for a much later episode, though. King Seti would die in the year 1279 BCE. The throne would pass on to his son, who had likely been at the skirmish of Kadesh, and Egypt would enter into its most famous period in all of its extremely long and famous history. Next week, Muatali will be an aging king, while in Egypt, the crown will be held by Usur Ma'at Re, Ozymandias, the great ancestor. Ra is the one who bore him, Ramesses the Great. Ramesses will spend four years getting established and battling pirates, and then in 1274 BCE, he will take on the only empire capable of matching the might of Egypt in the greatest battle of the Late Bronze Age, the largest chariot battle in history, and the very first battle in history for which we have extensive tactical details. So join us next time as we look in full detail at the Battle of Kadesh. Thank you for listening.